Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I have the pleasure of speaking to Clive Brewer, a performance specialist that has such a wealth of experience, both as a strength and conditioning coach, but also as a performance director, as you'll hear in today's episode. In exciting news, Informed Performance over the next few days, we'll be launching our free digital magazine finally, full of some great articles from industry leaders across both performance and sports medicine. To celebrate the launch, Push have very kindly given us a push band, which you might get lucky to win via our competition giveaway by reading the magazine. To ensure you don't miss this competition and, of course, the magazine, head over to Inform Performance on Instagram or at InformPod on Twitter to catch the release announcements. Today's episode of the Inform Performance podcast has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard. The Nordboard has become the gold standard for assessing field-based hamstring strength. By combining advanced sensors, real-time data visualizations, and cloud analytics, the Nordboard helps practitioners to accurately measure, monitor, and train individuals' hamstring strength or imbalances. To learn more about the Nordboard, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. Very quickly before the episode begins, I just want to say a big thank you for everyone that reaches out to us to give us feedback on the episodes and those of you that also share the episodes via your social media feeds. It's really appreciated and as we extend informed performance from podcast to a magazine and article provider, you sharing, leaving reviews and subscribing makes a tangible difference to our ability to sustain and grow our efforts to provide you with interesting and educational content. So just a really quick thank you from us. Anyway, let's get into today's episode between myself and Clive Brewer. Clive, welcome to the show, mate. It's uh, it's fantastic to have you on. Thanks, Andy. It's great to be on. I appreciate your time. It's uh, going to be enjoyable talking with you. No, pleasure. And, you know, I think I first came across you a good 11, 12 years ago, and you, you were actually one of the first um, exposures I had to a professional strength and conditioning coach uh, when I heard you present at a live event. Um, but for, you know, maybe listeners that might not have heard of you, if they haven't, would you be able to kind of outline your background and just kind of give us some context and bring us up to date? Yeah, sure. So, um, as I guess a lot of people in my, you know, in our profession are, I was, the, I was the failed athlete, um, and, you know, went from a career of study in sports science, um, and was, was really lucky when I graduated just to be in the right place at the right time, um, at Loughborough University at a time towards the end of the 90s where um, UK sport was really galvanising around the idea of uh, surrounding an athlete with expertise and, and, you know, the need to get more professional um, from a support service perspective. So uh, I was lucky to be around that time and, and started working with, with England Rugby uh, in a role as a project coordinator for the, the National Fitness Programme. And that that led into you know all sorts of opportunities and you know um, probably from there I went to to ended up at Sports Scotland uh, was probably the biggest role uh, that I had in the early two thousands and that was as a national lead for athlete development and that really enabled me a chance to bring together um, you know experts from coaching from strategy from from um, uh, medicine and science and try and put those together and to build frameworks for teams and, and individuals to provide services to those teams, you know, in a structured way. Um, from there, I went to uh, England Rugby League as the head of human performance. And my role there really was, um, 
you know, to to pull together the strength and conditioning, the sports science, but also the sports medicine into a really integrated delivery team. And, and that set, you know, my journey from there on inwards uh, through professional rugby clubs and soccer. And uh, a few years ago, I ended up at the Toronto Blue Jays, um, setting up a high performance program there um, with Dr. Angus Mugford, who's the, the VP, uh, leading that area of work. So really interesting, you know, changing cultures, changing sports, changing countries. Um and then last year I was with Columbus Crew in Major League Soccer as the director of high performance. So all the time, you know, I've been a very hands-on applied uh, strength and conditioning coach. Um, I think I was the first national track and field strength and conditioning coach for Scotland. Um, and uh, and combine that with with a love of science and a curiosity for for medicine that's that's uh, you know kind of helped me understand how to to develop and train the human body and. Um, it's something I, I'm still fascinated with every day. No, good stuff. And you know, you've had you've had numerous roles and worked at a host of teams and organisations. Uh, what I'm curious to know is kind of how your style or approach for maybe managing performance has developed over the years. And I'm sure you know I, I could I could have asked you this at any moment in your career, and I'd probably get a different answer as the field evolves and how you evolve professionally as well. But um, yeah, how have you kind of changed over time? Maybe in a way that's poignant to today. No, I think that you know, I learned I learned very early on that you know, and I guess humility has always taught me that if you, the answers typically to a problem around the athletes sit outside of my expertise, right? Or they're going to be found by uh, conferring with people who are looking at the problem through a different lens than than I am, um, and. I had a couple of, of learning experiences taught me really on that, that looking at it from the athlete's lens is probably the best way to start this, if that makes sense. So um, I, uh, I was actually, I, one of my professors at Loughborough said to me once, if you want to be a sports scientist, you've got to learn to be a subject. And so I volunteered for everything that was going. And um, I was on, I was on the treadmill one day doing a, doing one of those horrible tests to exhaustions that we all do trying to look at some nutrition supplement and what the benefit was. Actually, sorry, I wasn't a treadmill, it was a bike. And, uh, um, and in the middle of this, this test, I had this, my heart rate spiked and afterwards everyone was trying to sit down and say, well, maybe it was this and maybe it was that and maybe it was the other. And, and actually I said to them afterwards, the reality was, uh, the girl that I just started dating, um, had walked into the room and I'd, I'd seen her and my heart rate went up a little bit. <laughs> um, and it was my first real, it, it sounds dumb, but it was my first real perspective into the, you know, why are we trying to solve physiological problems just purely by physiology? You know, surely there are better ways of looking at it and exploring it and, and that sort of stuff. So, um, and I, I certainly became a far better strength coach when I started working very closely with good physios. Um, and I started to understand the lens that they looked at the human body through. Um, and actually it, it really helped me understand a lot about, you know, movement and, and also training that both enhances performance, but is going to, you know, double, you know, have a double benefit of, uh, of decreasing the, 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 you know, the injury incidence or the injury, uh, percentage of injuries occurring within the athlete. So I think that's, that's how my, you know, my, my things evolved. And, and I was lucky enough um, to be a chair of the, the basis interdisciplinary section, which for those who aren't sure is the, the British Association of Sport and Exercise Science actually has a, a, an interdisciplinary section whereby 
groups of experts come together and focus on problems that athletes face as opposed to problems that the discipline might encounter. I mean, it sounds like you've got quite a, or you've had quite a broad, um, I guess, appreciation and consideration holistically for things that can interact with, you know, the bread and butter as, of what we do as strength coaches. Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you, someone asked me to to describe, you know, what's the, what's the shape of your knowledge? I guess it's T-shaped in the fact that, you know, I've got a broad base of the spine, which is, you know, strength and conditioning, um, strength and conditioning base. But then there's a, there's a, a broad width to the top of that, which is, you know, I, I can sit and, and talk to physiotherapists. I can sit and talk to psychologists. I can sit and talk to nutritionists without being able to do their job you know, um, and just, just have an appreciation of, of how they view the world. And, and that makes, that makes me a better practitioner in, you know, in the specialisms I have. And it was really interesting to me actually when I, you know, when I was talking to the the president of the Blue Jays in my interview process and he said to me, you know, when did you, when did you stop being a strength coach and start being a scientist? And the answer really was, it definitely was never, you know, um, my, my degree was in, was in sports science. I learned, you know, I learned anatomy, physiology, psychology, biomechanics with a view to becoming a coach. You know, I, I, I don't see the two as being mutually exclusive. Yeah. As, um, as someone who, you know, I've got no doubt, uh, you know, multiple people from different teams around the world are probably on the phone to picking your brains. Uh, you know, COVID is obviously a big thing at the moment, but is there any other kind of trends or maybe problems that you find yourself uh, helping people to solve at the moment I'm just you know I'm aware you've got your ear to the ground globally in sport so you know is there any kind of commonalities that, you, that you're kind of seeing as an industry at the moment um no I mean I, I again COVID COVID seems to be the one that uh you know is is troubling most people and you know I was I was on the phone to this, this morning to someone actually in a team and you know this is this is a wonderful professional who's who's truly doing what I believe to be all the right things and is still coming at you know it's coming against problems that that no one's had to face before you know um, so I think that's that's definitely been a real learning opportunity um, as <laughs> as well as a, a hardship for everybody um, in the industry I think the other good th- you know the thing I see a lot at the minute with with a lot of people is around um, how do we actually integrate, you know, what is, what is this thing called sports science and how do we actually integrate it into what we do, you know? Um, and I think there's, the, you know, there's very much some cultural differences around that. You know, I, I, I grew up in, in the UK, which was, you know, at the time when I was growing up, it was heavily influenced as, as well by Australia and the learning they'd gone through. Um, and, you know, coming over to the States, I think that there's, there's a different history and a different tradition around that and you know so so teams looking now at how do we how do we understand what is science and how can we use it um i think is you know that's that's something i i spend a lot of my time now working with with people on and talking to people about yeah and and this might seem like a well it will seem like an overly stupid question um but you know based on what we know what we're doing today and also what we need you know how do you define sports science? I know that sounds like a very fluffy, vague question, but um, sports science changes, I feel like, the most out of all the technical disciplines that support athletes. So, you know, as you see it in this current moment, you know, how do you kind of define or how do you see the role of sports science functioning at the moment? 
Um, I think that's a, that's a, that's a really interesting question. And, um, and I've probably given some conference presentations where I've actually given some textbook things, but just off the top of my head, I actually, I'd prefer just to, to reframe it and say, you know, where I think we can provide most value added is, is rather than saying, um, what is sports science is to look at this. And I was actually, I was actually talking to a, a guy leading the program at one of the American colleges about this earlier on, um, is much more about what's the science of sport. And if we, if we take that approach to it, I think it helps to embed sports science into much more of what we do. So, you know, I spend a lot of my time trying to say, look, what I want to do is to align expertise around an athlete and answer the fundamental fundamental question is, what does this athlete need to be a better player? And what do we need to do to achieve that? And then we can all pull together in towards that common direction. So it's much more about critical thinking and problem solving. And then how do we use people, process and technology to answer those answer those problems and you know apply the right one of each um, to solve the problem to make the athlete better. Um, if if that makes sense, you know we all we all face problems, you know in in terms of like so a common one in baseball is how do, you know how do you how do you make a hitter better at hitting a ninety mile an hour baseball, you know. Um, now at the elite level, they're they're obviously pretty good at it because they've got to the elite level, but. You know, you only got to hit thirty percent in the major leagues, and you do that enough times, you're going to be you're going to be in the Hall of Fame. So, how do we increase increase the chances of someone getting to to thirty percent? And you know, there's a number of ways that we can do that from understanding and you know applying science to the practice environment um, and going through the skill acquisition route, or applying science to the physiology of motion and the force that they're able to import in the bat, or we can apply it through the science of vision training um, or vision testing and leading vision training. You know, there's a, there's a number of different ways that we can approach that. The answer is we probably want to do all of them or just not all at once, you know, um, and they all come under that umbrella of, of, of what is sports science. And, and often it's a lot more like I like to say is, is about really providing, um, evidence-based practice or evidence-informed practice, I should say, and, you know, using that to guide the process of which we're, which we're going through. Obviously you've got, you know, a ton of experience and uh, I think with experience, you can, you can quite quickly, you know, hear about an organization, see it, be within it and identify what you need to do. But how do you kind of, how do you get people to, ask those simple but hard to ask questions you know like i think sometimes the simplest questions create the best answers especially in a performance or sports medicine setting but how do you get people to kind of stop asking the tiny questions about the the nuances of what we do or what we currently existing uh, you know current processes are how do you get people to go kind of beyond that to going right back to the most basic of questions um, to then get to those technical processes I think sometimes it's understanding the common, I mean, I, it's probably best to illustrate this with example, if that makes sense, you know? So yeah. um, one of the things we did in, in baseball a lot is to, is to sit around and look at um, each, each of the top players and talk about, you know, what do they need and how do they get better and how do they do this and, you know, and that kind of thing. And so the, 
I, I was sat down there one time talking. We were talking about a guy who'd been um, was was a real prospect. Um, five years later on, he's he's a major league player. Um, but they were identifying the fact that you know he doesn't move well, um, and his position requires him to move really well. Now we'd gone through a, a process of evaluation and science, and this is where I think it's not not good for it to exist in its own right, if that makes sense. Which kind of suggested that they actually the player moved really well. You know, um, we'd done a lot of movement movement analysis on him, and he moved really well. And in, and in in terms of the testing that we'd done for movement skills. He, he was top of the tree. And so the discussion was was evolved really well from going, you know, typically they'd have said, okay, he doesn't move well. He needs to go and do more movement stuff. Whereas we could then bring in the evidence that said, actually, he moves pretty well. And when we put, a, when we put a, um, the need to make a decision into that movement, then he doesn't move as well, but he still moves pretty good. You know, he moves from the top 3% to the top 12% maybe. Um, but as, so so therefore, is it really um, – so yeah, you go back and ask the coaches the question, is it really his movement or is it the decisions that he's making in the game? Because if we, if we do a lot more movement stuff, his movement isn't going to get that much better. Whereas if we – you know, if it's his defensive reads and his understanding of the game – then we can make a big difference to his movement. So can we combine the two and bring the two together? And it starts with that fundamental question about what is what is going to make this player a better player? Um, those sorts of processes, I think, help build your... They build your credibility and build your stock, if that makes sense. Um, and you provide... you provide the evidence and the rationale. I mean, most discussions these days start with, you know, understand the why. You know, um, and it's it's not something that's to be overrated. You know, if we start everything with this is the why we're doing this, then then I think that really fundamentally helps. And everyone understanding that it's about everything we do is about making the athlete better. There's no there's no room for egos or hierarchies of different disciplines or different expertise within this. If we're all together aligned to making the player better and understand that, you know, we have that common objective, then that makes everything a lot a lot easier even at times of, you know, when, when we're, we're trying to enforce change. Yeah. And I think, you know, everyone can appreciate that the the performance director, especially, I think, has to be able to join the dots and uh, pull people from different departments or different viewpoints on the athlete together. Um, everyone will have ideas on this, but is, is there any kind of ways that you've been able to personally pull people from different departments or uh, different viewpoints on what the athlete needs to be doing? Is there any ways that you've been really effective, you think, you know, looking back, at getting people to be on the same page? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, like, I mean, fundamentally, everyone wants to be respected in terms of their knowledge base. That's the first thing you need to, you know, you need to acknowledge is, is the fact that everyone needs to have, everyone needs to be empowered to understand that the knowledge and the experience that they've got is important in this process, you know? So I think one of the breakthrough times that we had with the Blue Jays, um, for example, with a, the with a support staff, and this process was very alien to them, um, when we first got there was was literally sent down and saying, guys, look, we're going on a journey. And, you know, at some point, you know, let, let's let's use a metaphor of driving in a car. Then at some point you're going to be the driver of the car. And at some point you're going to be the navigator. And the navigator's role is important as the drivers, right? Because otherwise you get lost. And at some point you're going to be the passenger who's in the back seat and your job is going to be the entertainer because you've got to keep the driver awake. 
and keep everyone happy. And at some point, you're going to be the passenger in the back sleep who's asleep. And it's important that you get your sleep because you're going to be the next driver. You need to be fully recovered. So the four of you are all on the journey. You've all got your own roles and your all roles are distinct, but you rely on each other to get through, you know. Um, and I learned, I actually learned, you know, I, I took that analogy um, from a really, really powerful thing that um, I was lucky enough to sit through with when I was with England Rugby League. And uh, the coaching staff organized this and they, they actually got someone to come in from the military, from military medicine. And she was a, she was a nurse and, and she talked about, and she actually showed a video of this. It was um, the, the power of this video was, was unreal. You know, there was, there was a ton of us sat around in tears afterwards, but, um, and she talked about like, you know, when they go out to rescue a casualty on the battlefield, then her job is to immediately just deal with the trauma of the casualty and get him secured so they can get him back to base. She is a hundred percent focused on that. She has a medic with her who is 100% focused on doing what she tells him. They can only do that if they've got three soldiers around them, keeping them safe. They can't be worried about safety. They have to focus on the casualty. So the three soldiers around them, their job is to keep the the medical team safe and the casualty safe. And then there's two guys on the the helicopter whose job is to keep them safe. And everyone is 100% focused on doing their job so that everyone else can do their job so that the mission achieves success, you know? And I, I think that, you know, it's getting people to understand that your role is massively important in that process. And at some point you're going to be a leader and at some point you're going to be a supporter and at some point you're going to be a follower and at some point you're going to be a spectator, but that that's a revolving door, you know? Whereas I think, you know, I've, I've been in situations where, um, you know, for example, you, you, a player has been evaluated and been determined as being hypermobile. So the strength and conditioning staff are doing a lot of stuff to increase his motor control um, around joints. And then the player would leave the weight room and walk into the, the physio room and be stretched the hell out of because it was part of his game preparation routine, you know, for example. So... And that's where you get that's where you get a discipline led perspective where people work against each other. Um, whereas when you've got everyone singing from the same hymn sheet because they they understand what that what that common script is and everyone's everyone's aligned to that mission and vision, I think that's that's really important. So having having those discussions and everyone understanding that and and ensuring that that there's transparency and clear and effective communication through that that's that's the basis of achieving you know achieving that success and you know i i I remember my first my first day at the blue jays and you know i I listened to an athletic trainer say to a strength coach um that guy can't do any um can't do any lower body work and i was like okay why and he said oh well they know he's, he's he's recovering from an acl and i said okay so how long ago was that? And he told me the timeline, told me the time frame. I was like, great. Well, what sort of graph was it? And he said, well, why do you want to know that? And I said, because, you know, is it a patella tendon graph, a hamstring graph, a cadaver graph, you know, because each one of those has got a different rehab process, a different timeline, a different, there's different outcomes for it. There's, there's different things that we're looking for in terms of progressing the injury. And no one had had that conversation with him before, you know, 
So it led to a really great discussion where we could pull everyone into one room and go, okay, look, let's, let's talk about the guys we've got in rehab and what are the considerations around their injuries and how can we... And it, and it wasn't a case of the medical team telling the strength and conditioning staff what they could do. It was the first time they'd actually had a discussion where the medical team had said, this is the limitations around the athlete and the strength coach is saying, this is the best way that we can... Um, exploit those limitations or develop those limitations, if you like, and progress them towards competency so that everybody's expertise in that process became valued and became important as opposed to one telling someone else what to do. And it's powerful yeah. learning moments like that that really, that really help the process. When, you, when you've got these kind of, um, and we kind of touched upon it a minute ago, uh, when, you, when you've got these situations where people are functioning in their kind of silos, you know, silos being the, the buzz term that we love, um, to describe it um h- how do you kind of interrupt the process and resolve it and you know i know we want to avoid it and we read and we study and we listen to content on kind of how do you improve culture and how do you get around these uh, things conceptually and how do you start processes well but i know there'll be a strength coach a sports scientist a physio whoever that's listening who wherever they work now whichever team or organization they've they might have some friction with somebody in another department and you've got that kind of that splitting of minds and the silos developing. How do you, you know, putting you on the spot of some horribly vague context, but how do you interrupt the process or resolve it when you're in that moment where where you're starting to get the friction? Um, I I mean, one, I think is it's, it's important to recognize that like sports, high pressure environment, you know, it's a dynamic, constantly changing high pressure situation and and you're going to get friction, you know? Um, I think that's the, the first thing to recognize is that that will happen. And then if you're going to try and put any form of change into that, it, it becomes more inevitable that it's going to happen. Does that make sense? So firstly is try and be prepared for it. Um, and and look, I mean, the benefit of having experience, right, means I've had a ton of learning situations on the way, which means that I've done something wrong. So <laughs> I'm not saying I've got it right first time every time. Don't you know? By 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 no means, I don't want I don't want anyone to to take that. Um, the I think the first thing is to go back to making sure that there is clear organizational alignment and there's support through the whole organization that enables us to manage what are, you know, what are the spectator, what are, what are the stakeholder um, expectations of this? You know, what is what are our timeframes? Because if we want change and we want delivery and we want a process delivered approach, you know, because, you know, we're in a service industry, right? So it's, it's process driven, but if you're going to change that process and deliver act, act results now, like, you know, we're setting ourselves up for failure, you know, and I had a really good discussion with um, the the CEO at the Blue Jays or the president of the Blue Jays, and he took me out for dinner. And he was like, "Clive, I think you're trying to drive the agenda for change here too quickly." And I and I said to him, "I said, well, that's because you've given me these outcomes." And he said, "Yeah, but you've got you've got years to change those outcomes. You're trying to do it in months." And it was the first time anyone in professional sport had ever told me that. You know, um, the culture, the, the culture you've been around, the culture in the UK. You know, the average tenure of a premiership manager, I think, is about six months. You know, that, that's, that's not me quoting a statistic, but it's not very long because the pressure to deliver results is real, you know. So 
actually him saying, no, you've got the time, take the time. It's, it's cultural change is important to us. It's our vehicle for doing things that set out the spectate that, that set out the stakeholder expectations, if that made sense, you know, and it, it therefore meant that some of the, you know, when you, when we were going through the change process, that's emotionally intensive and it's labor intensive and it's, it's emotionally and labor intensive on top of guys already trying to do a high pressure job, you know? So there was internal resistance to it, you know, and so it was, it was really great to have that organizational support to be able to say, okay, look, we can, you know, let's, let's take the foot off the gas pedal a bit, pump the brakes a little bit. And then, you know, we can, we can, we can change these things slowly and over time. So I think that's the, that's the first thing to understand is there is, is the organizational alignment and support for that is, is really important. You know, yeah, you sound pretty fortunate with that uh, that example. It sounds like a very progressive environment for you to huge. Um, have a little bit of leeway in how you dose change. Yeah, hugely, and it, it actually enabled us to build the time to establish trust and psychological security, and understand that you know we weren't we weren't doing this to expose people or to you know and and fire people, and and that's one of there's there's a natural fear there of change of the unknown you know, of, of being exposed, maybe, you know, because guys have been doing this role for a long time, you know, and actually what I was trying to say is, look, we really value your expertise and really value your experience. Um, it's, it's huge to us. And it was, and it's not just the support services, you know, I had had a discussion with someone on the pitching staff and they were like, Clive, you know, you, you, you don't belong in this environment. And I was like, oh, let's unpick that a little bit, you know? And he said, well, what what can you possibly hope to, to influence at this level? And I was like, well, you know, a couple of Olympic cycles and I've been to a couple of World Cups in different sports and some European championships. And, um, you know, I've been around a lot of winning teams. Um, I've done 20, Olympic, uh, 20 Wimbledon um, championships by that point. You know, so I I kind of understand the pressures of the environment. So what what is it that that I don't you know I don't belong at or, or whatever? And it was like, no, you don't belong in a major league baseball environment. You don't understand baseball. And I'm like, no, I agree, but I'm not here to influence that. You know, that's your role. That's your expertise. That's your what I really want to do is to learn from your expertise, shortcut that. You know, shortcut the learning that I don't have to bring in the learning that I do have that anyone who hasn't been outside of baseball will never have been exposed to. And how do we bring the two together? So I, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to threaten your expertise. I'm trying to say your expertise is invaluable and I need to, I need to learn from it, grow with it, develop it and help you develop your expertise at the same time. Um, And I think, you know, with, with that type of approach, you know, comes the, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to threaten you. I'm trying to enhance what you do, but I really, really need and value what you bring. That's that's hugely essential. I always think a kind of um, a skill people need that maybe isn't spoken about enough is the ability to appraise a team or an organization. Um, I don't know how you do this personally, but I think you've got to f- you've got to make sure when you're going for a job or you're going to a team or any organization that you understand the pace and the direction that they're going in um, regardless of the role you're moving into because you can try and convince them that you're 
your personality and your technical skills are what they need or you know and you meet the job spec etc but you've got to be able to be a cultural fit and they've got to be heading the way that you want to be heading within their, their organization as well does that make sense no absolutely um and you know and, it, and it's where you come across that you know um again some organizational conflict if that doesn't occur you know so i think that um you know, I've been in situations where someone, you know, I, I see my role, if you like, as the you know, in a performance director context, as I'm, you know, I'm the conductor of the orchestra, right? Um, now, I could play third violin. I can't because I'm, I'm, I don't know anything about music. But as an example, I could play third violin if I had to. I can walk in the weight room and deliver a strength training session. I can deliver a speed training session. I can deliver a warm up. But actually, I, you know. I've got a world-class third violin there. My job is to is to leverage their expertise and their experience in the same way as I've got a world-class cellist and a world-class oboe player. You know, um, my job is to leverage their expertise and experience and, and create the environment that's going to get the most out of them so that the best music is produced as opposed to do it myself. You know, and, you know, people said to me, why are you not doing this? And I'm like, no, my job isn't to do that. My job is to get them to do that better. You know, and therefore I become a force multiplier. Sure, they could do their own job in their own right, and and they'd be good at it. But but it's the it's the bringing it's the bringing of them together and bringing the expertise together. That's the force multiplier effect, if that makes sense. You know, so coming back to coming back to your answer, your earlier question, which I probably didn't answer very well, but like, what's the what's one of the things that that I think is important about not you know breaking down silos is first off is having a commonality of language. You know, so that that actually everybody, you know, when a strength coach talks to an athletic trainer or a physio, they are talking about the same thing in the same way that they can they can both engage with and agree with. In terms of um, how you structure your processes and how you structure your thoughts and put together a performance program and who you bring into that program as well, I think one context maybe that uh, we could talk about and everybody in the world in sport can relate to at the moment is, is COVID. Um, you know, just kind of off the top of your head at the moment, how would you go about um, structuring a staffing department or structuring a program with COVID in mind? And that's a horribly vague context, even though it's with COVID in mind, but how does COVID change your thought processes at the moment as a, as a performance directing mind? I think that's a really tough question, Andy. Um, I think that if anything, COVID has reinforced the importance for us of really understanding um, the structure and the contextual demands of the organization. And if we understand that, that's really going to determine how we structure our performance department, aligning, a, any, aligning any department to the mission, vision, values and structure um, within an organization is, is really key to its success and understanding not just, you know, what, what's the role of that department? What do you actually want it to do at any particular time? And then how do you want it to report into the organization? So does it report to the head coach? Does it report to a technical director? Um, in my case, the, at Columbus, for example, my role deported, uh, reported directly to um, the president and not to the head coach or the technical director. So I think the, the structure... Um, of the communication, the management in that process is is really important. Understanding that before you set something up is is crucial to success. 
And then COVID aside, you know, a key thing for me is is understanding what does success actually look like for that department? What are you, what are you expected to deliver and, and what are you required or what are you going to be accountable for in terms of outcomes? And once we've got that in place, um, and so, for example, for me, I always talk about, you know, uh, improving uh, physical and mental capacities within players, uh, improving their preparedness so they turn up for every game ready to go, and increasing player availability, i.e. more players available for training, more players available for matches, and therefore less less injuries and or a quicker return time from injuries. And to deliver that, it's really important I understand what are the existing staff capabilities. So when I went into Columbus, for example, I, you know, I sat the staff down and said, look, the intention is not to change anything here. We know you, you, your job is not under threat. Um, but what we really want to do is to understand what it, what is the skill matrix that we have and then how can we adjust uh, the workload around that? So what can we do? Who can best do it? And what are the gaps that we really need to fill in terms of either our staff development or our staff recruitment? So when you're new in, my thought process were evolving, for example, as COVID came through. So we've been through, I, I came in, uh, I wanted to observe what people could do and, and my thoughts were evolving. But when COVID hit, it changed our process completely. But it really gave me an opportunity to evaluate, you know, which players have gravitated to which staff uh, in terms of remote delivery. And we were setting up communication channels, which players gravitated to which staff. And then also, because we were trying to focus on uh, developing new ways of working. So we weren't geared up towards remote working, for example. So the the strength coach could actually say to him, he, he'd been doing a lot of, um, as a strength and conditioning coach, he'd been doing a lot of on-field stuff beforehand. He said to him, look, I really need you to focus on remote communication of uh, the strength program, but also remote delivery of the strength program. So think about, how can we increase the number of Zoom calls that we do with players? How can we increase the online classes available? What about the equipment that each player has got? How do we individualize a player's program around the equipment that they've got and the opportunity they've got? Focus just on that. Don't worry about any of the fitness sides of it. And then I can say to another guy who who was much more geared towards the on-field fitness but probably wasn't doing it beforehand, and so you, I want you to focus on working with me on the running programs, the speed programs, how do we get more positionally specific? How can we periodize this, you know, et cetera. So it really enabled me to, to hone in on people's key skills and experiences. And that meant that when training came back in again, I was in a much more, I was in a better position to work with those staff to say, this is your strength. This is where you're good at. This is where you're really good at. Focus on that and grow that. Um, and, Here's how I'm going to reorganize the workload in, in other areas uh, to deliver that. So that was that was a useful transition for me um, coming in and managing it. I think the other thing is it, it, it identified gaps in our skill provision around things like mental performance and the mental health roles. So when we were in the in the bubble in Orlando, for example, it became very apparent that our players actually needed and, and staff as well. Um, they needed someone to talk to, uh, you know, a, a specialist counsellor. So that was made available to them, but we hadn't previously had it on staff. So finding those those opportunities um, around those aspects of delivery, I think, is really important, and it's, and it's emphasised the importance for me in terms of having 
uh, dedicated professionals in, in each of those roles, uh, which is something we, we actually knew at the Blue Jays previously, having grown a whole mental performance department uh, from nothing. So that was that was good learning. And, and similarly, the importance of having a dedicated nutritionist uh, COVID really enforced that, I think. And, and there's two aspects of a nutritional provision. One is the individualization of a flexed and periodized nutritional program to suit the individual players based upon their cultural background, their tastes, uh, and then training needs and outcomes, but also in terms of the, the food delivery aspect. And so when we were in the bubble, we didn't take our nutritionists with us. Uh, Columbus. We had a limited number of staff places and we had to sit down as a group, as a management group and say, who are we taking? And the president said, I want one of those spots because he wanted to come down for a certain number of days. And that meant that someone had to be cut from the travel party, which the decision was made. We will cut the nutritionist because he can do his thinking work remotely and the hands-on delivery stuff can always be picked up by other members of staff. That put significant pressure on us when we actually got into the bubble um, because uh, two two factors. So one is we're in Florida. Uh, it's a hot, humid environment that the players aren't used to. So hydration testing was really important for us. So And we did that through means of uh, urine testing in the mornings and looking at uh, fluid osmolality. So we did a USG test and – that required someone, me as it turned out, to, every day to be um, measuring urine-specific gravity uh, within urine samples on 25 players. That takes time. And it also takes time at a period of time when we're trying to get in the day, the player's daily preparation routine prior to getting them on the bus to go to training. But we've got less staff to do that with because three of our fitness staff and our analyst had to go to the training field in advance to get everything set up for the player's arrival for training. So actually having a nutritionist who could have done that as an extra hands-on, but it's more more in his wheelhouse, uh, would have been very beneficial. And similarly, most of the problems of our – you know, diet's really important to any team. And the food service provision was provided by the hotel at the time. And so when there's problems around that, having a nutritionist there who's you know made the menus up in advance – has relationships with the food delivery people can solve that as opposed to taking time out of my role or someone else's role to try and to try and do that would have been really important you know so uh, and similarly we had other problems when players were you know isolated in their hotel rooms because they've been contact traced as part of a positive test for example meant we had to get food to them in a hotel so how we figured that out, the hotel staff couldn't deliver the food for us to their rooms. We had to figure that out within our own internal team. So getting them to make their food choices, order their food, we had to collect the food, take it back to the room on top of, again, a normal stretched daily routine. Um, having a dedicated nutritionist to help us out with that would have been very, very useful. So for me, it's it's it hasn't – I wouldn't – think about things in terms of, um, you know, with COVID in mind, but having been through a COVID experience of remote working, graduated, return to training, being in the bubble, there's a lot of learning that I've taken from there. The things like, you know, I might not have made certain decisions I would have made, or I would definitely have done things differently and prioritize other staff members 
moving through it. I think the key to structuring any organization is really understanding um, what, is it, what is it that you're required to deliver? How are we going to deliver that? And what skills are required to make that happen? And how are we going to yeah. get those skills in place? In terms of like, um, you know, structures, if we, we're constantly hearing at the moment how, you know, outside of our industry, office space is going to change and how, you know, more and more businesses are going to be um, embracing and continuing perhaps with uh, virtual meetings and online working, remote working, you know, as a kind of crazy science and social experiment that we've gone through with COVID. Is there anything that we can learn from this that maybe we would change in the future? I'm not talking really dramatically, but you'd not, you'd never normally in any other season uh, make the changes or have to make the changes that we've had to in terms of how athletes are prepared and how you structure training and the week around that. But is there anything that, you know, if we reflect on COVID or reflect on what we're going through still with COVID that maybe you would change or you would consider uh, against a quote unquote normal environment for training? Look, we are always going to learn from our experiences and, and COVID accelerated that learning in, you know, war is a time of innovation because there's more problems and novel problems for people to solve, right? And COVID is, is no different. And I remember sitting down with the leadership team at the club at the start of this and really saying, look, the team that comes through this best is the team that's going to solve the problems best. So um, I think it's really highlighted for us the the importance of being flexible, being adaptable, um, and being creative in the way that we look at identifying the problems that are in front of us and really trying to get ahead of those. So um, that's that I think will, you know will carry on. Um, and it's certainly highlighted one of the things that's one of my core values is that you know I'm there to to help um, the needs of the athlete, right, and to help them get better. I think one of the things it's also reinforced for me, um, something I knew intuitively, but maybe has made it much more averse, is the importance of looking after the staff. And I'll talk about the players in a minute, but just talking about the staff, for example, I had four members of staff in the performance department who live by themselves in uh, single-bedroom apartments. And when you go into lockdown, they have no social interaction for a day. So they're used to going from a very, very social environment, whether at a club around a large number of people on a daily basis to inside one room where they don't talk to anybody for large periods of time. So we went from, you know, we started having daily Zoom meetings as the rest of the world did uh, to, to plan the work and deliver it. But they often became social events and, and it became apparent to me that sometimes that was, that was wasting time when time is pressured for those of us who had to get into other meetings and, and that kind of thing. So, we made the conscious decision to say, this is a meeting and in this meeting we will only discuss work, but also creating vehicles and opportunities for social engagement with those people to replace what they normally have in a, in a daily working environment. So coffee hours, happy hours, uh, quizzes, uh, sharing of, of recipes and food challenges, did all those things with the staff just to help their physical and mental well-being at that time and and. The, the, the team and the cohesive unit really benefited from that and we got to know each other a lot better. So I think the importance of looking after the, looking after your staff, uh, knowing your staff, that, that's that been highlighted by by COVID and that was, a, that was a good piece of learning. In terms of the players, the, you know, I've always said they're, they're, they're the fundamental reason that we exist to make them to make them better. 
And so it's really important that we continue and, and build trust with the players at all times in the performance department. And there, there's various approaches to how you might have dealt with that in lockdown. So there was certain pressure from people to really micromanage, be on top of every player, make sure they're doing every workout, make sure they're staying on, make sure they're not overeating, make sure they're not, you know, and that wasn't necessarily my my way of thinking. For me, it was more about putting in place a process that really emphasized the fact that, look, we're here for you. We understand you've got families. We understand you're scared. We understand that no one really knows much about this disease. So we're, you know, we're, we're inventing this as we go along and it's a, it's a changing environment. So what do you need from us? Here's what we need you to do, but we don't know when we're going to return to training. So until we do, we're not really going to put the pressure on. Um, but at, at some point we're going to say, now we really need you to do this. Make sure you're ready to go because we're coming back. And we, we, I think we did a really good job of, of building that, that graduated process through. Um, and as we went through that process, it was important for us about, you know, flexibility and solutions. So how can you evaluate whether the player is doing the training? Um, we wanted to set uh, players up for success, but we also wanted to encourage them to, to train hard when they were training and train with an appropriate intensity. We didn't have a system in place that logistically would enable us to, for example, deliver GPS units out to every player. So in normally in a training environment, everything the player does as soon as they enter the field is tracked with a GPS unit and we can report against that. Well, we couldn't get the units out to the players, back from the players, download the data, get them out to the players again. Uh, we, we couldn't have a system that would, would do that around our logistics. But we could use, for example, if the player ran with a mobile phone, we could use Strava. And we could track it on there and we set up a team database uh, so that players could see what everyone else was doing. Um, and the staff went on there and so that we could see what they were doing, but also they could see what we were doing as well. And it became it became a way of this is the session. You know, we can see that everybody's done it. We can see the intensity they run. And we, we accept there's certain limitations. It's not GPS, but that's, that's fine. Um, I think also in terms of how you establish training load, was was a was a very good discussion. Certain people I know were talking about it's a real opportunity to build up chronic load in terms of maybe endurance, fitness, um, aerobic base, that sort of stuff. And my viewpoint was was probably very different to that in that I think we'd probably create more problems than we solve through that approach because players aren't used to doing high volumes of aerobic work. And they're certainly not used to doing it on um, paved surfaces roads and sidewalks where a lot of the players that would be the only opportunity to run because we weren't on the on the grass so um i i developed a different approach uh, which i think served as well um the performances would suggest you know that, that it did in the sense that we were getting suboptimal strength training um, no matter how hard we tried and so therefore to replace the neuromuscular stimulus um, and to really keep the neuromuscular system as highly prepared as possible during the COVID time or the, the lockdown time, we emphasized high-speed running uh, and sprints and agility work and understand that we did that after a point of, you know, the players have been through a preseason um, and they played a couple of league games. So they weren't unconditioned for this type of work. So that was that for, for me was really important in terms of the load prescription where we could get, yes, you can get some, you know, conditioning benefit from it, but it really helped us keep on top of more game specific conditioning. I know linear sprints are not 
the ideal preparation for that either, but where we could build in uh, agilities, direction changes, that kind of thing, as much as possible with players training by themselves, then um, really understanding what's the what's the evidence that informs the process and prescription from there. And I think the other learning that COVID has really enabled us to have or, or develop within us is the importance of communication. So, look, you know, I'm a scientist, so if we're not assessing, we're guessing, right? So everything we want to do, we want to get as much data as possible where we can. Understand that we can cope in the absence of it, but, you know, how do we get data? How do we present that player so the, know that, so the players know that you're using it? And so a really good example is um, during the COVID process and uh, when we were in the hotel in the bubbles, the players were wearing um, devices that enabled them to track their sleep. And I can look at that. And the reason wasn't for a big brother approach and talk to the players about this a, a lot. Um, you know, we're not sharing that data with the front office. This is a data that sits with me so that I can look at it and say, you didn't sleep very well last night. Why is it? Is there anything that we can do to help? Um, what's your sleep routine like? What's your sleep environment like? All those things that we know that we can help with to improve your sleep routine. And that's for the benefit of the players. So so how data can be collected and how it can be communicated, um, I think was, you know, again, COVID just reinforced that because of the environmental constraints that were around us and making sure that we communicate the processes that we are doing when not everybody can see those. And that, that just builds... Um, that builds trust. So we've just kind of hit some topics around uh, structure around COVID. On the flip side, how would you, you know, based on what you've done and the various teams you've worked in, how would you structure a department um, as a performance director, not on a COVID year, in a, in a regular year? Yeah, no, I mean, really good question. I think the, the key thing for that depends upon, uh, obviously it all depends upon the resources available to you, right? So, um, I sent some stuff through to a um, a women's national soccer league program um, the other day, you know, and they were they were asking some advice around that. And it's like, you know, you need to have a plan A, plan B, and plan C that's based upon the resource that you're able to dedicate to that. And and I think the key thing comes down to look, we as a performance department, we want to be accountable for for three major things, right? One is um, increased physical capacity of the athletes. Two is increased physical preparedness of the athletes, i.e. they turn up at game day ready to go all the time. And the third is availability of players, which means they're available to the coach as much as the coach or as often as the coach wants to use and select them for both playing and training. So if we look at how do we achieve those three outcomes, then typically it comes down to, you know, we want to provide expertise in the field of strength and conditioning, the field of uh, sports medicine and and, and again, recognizing within that there's different there's different skill sets, you know, with strength and conditioning, there are people who are better at speed, people who are better in the weight room, um, people who are better at maybe some of the more, let's call them corrective exercise provisions, for example. Um, and then within, you know, within the, the sports medicine field, you've got uh, doctors, you've got um, physiotherapists or physical therapists as they are over here and you've got you know athletic trainers and sports rehab specialists so there's there's different areas of expertise then you've got nutrition you've got mental performance so i mean the challenge at the blue jays for example um was very much around the fact that we had you know we had the major league team 
four full season teams, three short season teams in the academy in the Dominican Republic, and they were split up um, in three different time zones, you know, across the geography of the US. So when I when I got there, there was I think fourteen members of staff. When I left, there was fifty two members of staff. Um, and the reason for that was because we grew um, our own rehab department because we valued that as a separate skill. Um, so brought in expertise to deliver to deliver the, the rehab component. Um, and we valued mental performance. So we brought in a, a department of mental performance and staffed it accordingly to be able to deliver through that structure. And uh, we, you know, we also really valued nutrition. And so brought in the, the every, every full season team had their own nutritionist, for example. So we had a team in nutrition. And so that's, that's you know, we, we grew to deliver those objectives. But then it became a case of, well, how do you, how do you build those teams and, and communicate? This is a challenge I'd never faced before. So coming from somewhere where we turned up at the training ground every day and we saw each other every day and then we went off to games to suddenly, you know, I came into spring training trying to figure out what the hell's going on here with, you know, the game of baseball with spring training with logistics. And then six weeks later, everybody disappeared to the four corners of the state. Now we've got to run that same process, but remotely, you know, so it was about communication structures and, and, you know, cohesiveness of message and consistency and delivery. And, you know, when you've got opportunities like that, that, you know, if there isn't that inclusive culture with shared beliefs and shared values, then it gives, you know, it gives opportunity for people to, to run off and go rogue, you know, if that makes sense or to cause problems. But because of, because of the inclusive nature and the way we wanted to do things, that, that fortunately didn't happen. But it brought about unique pressures that, that I'd never experienced before. And so establishing those processes and that structures, you know, and, and, and Angus, the VP, um, was instrumental. I mean, I can't, you know, the, the value that he brought in terms of, EQ and cultural awareness and, and and change and that sort of stuff was you know was immense and and I, I learned so much from him um, in terms of doing that. Um, that's a very different structure and requires a different mindset. Um, from for example, going into to Columbus, which is an MLS team, where um, you know my role principally was to take a, a medical team, a strength and conditioning team, an analyst, and a nutritionist. And then pull them together into a cohesive performance unit where we had an individual player plan for each player, which answered the fundamental question, what keeps this guy on the field and performing well? And then all of them aligned into that. And we were able to to split off and identify, you know, you as a specialist are much better on the field. You as a specialist are much better in the weight room. You as a specialist have these skills that that would lend themselves really well to leading on the field in the area of... um, corrective exercises and, you know, and, and work as a, as a bridge between the weight room and the strength and conditioning room. And, you know, you're really great on processes. So we'd like you to lead this aspect of stuff. You know, it was about, it, it's more about identifying, um, if, if you like a skills matrix and a competency matrix to the staff and saying who, who best has the skills to lead this area because we're all going to be practitioners and deliverers, you know, and in that environment, I could, I mean, I could be much closer to the, where I, you know, Shit, I still. Any anyone who's ever worked with me will tell you I am. I I just want to get out and coach. You know, um, at Columbus, I was much more able to do that. Whereas, for example, at the Blue Jays, um, I did it every opportunity I got, but I fundamentally had to make sure that I wasn't getting in the way of the relationship between a strength coach and 
the player who would spend the next eight months with him away on the road somewhere. Yeah, you certainly don't want to uh, undermine them. Well, exactly. You just don't, you, 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 want to, you want to allow them the space and the freedom and the scope to develop that relationship and that way of thinking. And, and so, you know, my role very much there was, look, sure, I took rehab sessions or, I, you know, I filled in or I, I led specialist sessions where there was the skills gap, which enabled me to develop the skills of the other coaches, you know, by bringing them on as support staff. Um, but, um, you know, f- uh, fundamentally for me, it was more about watching, observing and developing the staff from afar you know, rather than getting, rather than getting hands on coaching. And, you know, I understood that and, and, and fully accepted it. So I think the structure very much comes down to understanding what is the, you know, what's the mission, vision, values and organizational constraints that you're working within and then delivering the structure to it, you know, to achieve that. And, you know, and, and the kill, a key part of that is, is understanding what are the what are the skills of the peoples? What are the abilities and the knowledge and experience of the peoples? What are they what are they really strong at? And also, how do they want to be managed? Because you know? I want you know you want to manage people fundamentally in the way that they want to be managed. And a a fundamental value that every human being wants is is to be empowered to take control of their own destiny and their own you know their own areas of work. So I think that that for me is is really important that they see where they fit in that and they see how they are important to that structure no thank you for being um very transparent with that as well and um I'm, I'm conscious of time and we've been bouncing around quite a few different topics within um you know directing performance is there any kind of things i haven't you know enabled you to say or um have you got any kind of closing thoughts based on what we've been talking about no i don't think so i mean we, we've talked a lot around you know some of the the more soft and the process skills and the you know the importance of culture and environment which i think you know we can't fundamentally underestimate you know, um, I think there's other discussions that, you know, we could go into in a lot more depth about what is what is this evidence informed practice and what does it look like? And, you know, how does you know, how does the detail of science really help make us make us better and, and move things through? But I mean, it, we, we, that's a whole other discussion, a whole other topic. But I think the key thing that we want to turn around and say is, look, the value that bringing a number of experts together and being accountable for for a return on investment in their shared expertise, I think that's really important and fundamentally will underpin the future of performance sport and support services. Yeah, and based on what you've just said, mate, I'm gonna I'm gonna bug you for an episode two at some point. But um, where's the uh, where's the best place for the listeners to find you? Um, they can, I mean, pretty much they they can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, I use it that much that I couldn't tell you my Twitter handle. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's something like Clive Sport S&C or something like that. But, um, you know, I, again, I, um, they're, they're probably, those social media platforms are probably the easiest way to contact me. I will, uh, I will find your account names and I'll put them in the show notes just to make sure and make sure people can find you. Perfect. But, more, um, more than happy for people to have my email as well. That's, that's fine. Cool. Well, Clive, I've, I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you today and I enjoyed talking to you the other day before this, uh this episode as well so it's, it's been great to know you and um yeah thank you very much for coming on and, and kind of giving us the benefit of your wisdom mate it's always it's always great to talk to you and uh and likewise i've enjoyed the conversation thanks so much a big thank you to clive brewer for coming on today's show and as i kind of hinted at the end we're going to try and get clive back on for a part two which will be myself clive and ben ashworth all on the same call so something to look forward to 
As I said at the beginning of the show, we are imminently going to be releasing the digital magazine, so please head over to our social media channels to ensure you don't miss that. Those channels are Inform Performance on Instagram or at InformPod on Twitter. As usual, this episode, like all other episodes, will have show notes attached to them, which you can find at InformPerformance.com. But for now, thank you for listening to the Inform Performance podcast with me, Andy McDonald. Check in with us next week for more performance and sports medicine insights. 